Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps MTech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information. Good afternoon and welcome to the MTech Access Words of Wisdom webinar. Uh, I'm Tom Clark and it's great to be back talking with another senior leader from across the health and care archipelago. Um, looking at another dimension this week, this month of uh, how the NHS is evolving. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Caroline Dorr, who is the Deputy Director of Commissioning at Bristol, North Somerset and South Gloucestershire CCG. Prior to this, Caroline worked at University Hospital Plymouth NHS Trust uh, as the Medicines Care Group Manager, uh, an interesting role in its own right, uh, and previously to that has held senior roles in commissioning across the Southwest. Uh, we'll come to you in a, in a second, Caroline. Uh, can't wait to get started. Um, today we are going to be talking about the 2022-23 uh, Priorities and Operational Planning Guidance document. If in the audience you're unfamiliar with it, it is in the handout section on your screen. Uh, you can download it there for reference. Um, so Caroline, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Um, just to get us going, could, could you just describe your role and a bit about the system that you work in? Yeah, of course I can. And I was smiling, Tom, because I like the words of wisdom, but I wasn't sure if they were going to come from me. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, so we'll, we'll check back at the end. Um, so thank you. Um, so as Tom has said, I have, um, it still feels recently um, in that I've changed role from working um, within a, you know, quite a complex um, and challenging hospital, um, trying to manage medicine. Um, I'm not sure if anybody ever successfully manages medicine in today's world within the NHS. In, back into really a commissioning environment. Um, and I suppose my rationale for doing that really was to try and learn and understand a bit more about the integrated care systems that obviously we're moving towards um, and with some of that being um, delayed as well. Um, so, so Bristol, um, North Somerset and South Gloucester, which doesn't roll off the tongue very easily whatsoever, um, is a new system for me. Um, it has got um, lots of similarities to Devon, which is where I had previously worked for the last 10 years, either in a provider or a commissioner role. Um, and I suppose it, they're both complex systems in the sense of, and it might not sound much, but when you think about the number of relationships, but also kind of like the handover between people, the different processes that you just have with more organisations in a system, it's challenging. So we have three local authorities that are all very unique and different. Um, it's only over the last two years, so it almost coincided with the start of COVID, that we actually had one um, community provider. Before that, it was three. Um, so there's lots of work still to do, I think, uh, in terms of joining them up. Um, we've got one FT um, and one trust. Both are secondary care as well as tertiary um, providers. So again, that does prevent, you know, kind of create a, like another challenge. Um, the Foundation Trust over the last two years has taken on another smaller provider, um, which is literally just down the road, which again has its own challenges in the sense of sustainability, viability um, of services, 
Um, you know, so that's, I think, really caused a headache for what was a really good performing FT and the impact that that's having just on everyday flow in terms of um, urgent care. Um, and then the trust that I've mentioned, there's a massive PFI around that, but they have a beautiful building and it's actually nice to work somewhere in the NHS where there's actually some modern infrastructure, because at least it potentially gives you some more um, opportunities and there is actually some space in a state which the FT being in the middle of Bristol really doesn't have at all. So that's a really kind of quick pricey, but kind of gives you a flavour perhaps of the number of organisations and the complexities of all trying to agree things and work together. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is a fant fantastic introduction to get an idea of that complexity um, and gives us, I, said, I suppose, a sense of just, just trying to do your day job, as it were, and just kind of get from day to day. Obviously, there's all these different things you're juggling. We're going to get into talking about the new guidance that's just come out and, and thinking about sort of system provider, um, commissioner level, uh, to, to the extent that still exists. Obviously, different frameworks, different guidance exists within each of those. And then you've got primary care and mental health and community providers and everyone else within the system that you've kind of got to, to have oversight of for have engagement with. Can you just give us an idea of the various guidance documents and frameworks, et cetera, that you are working with in, in your role in the CCG? Yeah, of course I can. Um, so, I mean, in some respects over the last couple of years, and especially coming from a provider, a lot of it's been dominated by COVID guidance, and it still is to a certain extent, even working in a CCG. So anything related to um, IPC, you know, and in particular, perhaps around um, care homes, anything around um, vaccination status and that's an absolute real biggie this week partly because of um, you know the targets that we need to um, kind of work towards so the last date people could have their vaccination to be able to all be compliant by the beginning of April I think is the 4th of February um, so we've got a week um, and obviously there's a lot of assurance going on um, around that as well um, and I think it was interesting that a lot of the specific COVID guidance was probably trying to um, battle some of the legacy issues that we won't just have in our system, um, but across the country, really, in terms of, you know, patients, for example, that are medically fit in hospital, how we can speed up, you know, those assessment processes, you know, how we can get those pathways right into the community, but also with our local um, authorities as well. And then I think there's been... Um, interesting bits of guidance because I think people are just looking for innovation through COVID and I suppose at least from an NHS perspective for once you've had a bit of a free reign really to kind of think about you know what can you do differently and I suppose there are topics this might not be the right one to talk about but there are topics for example you know like establishing care hotels which might not be the right thing from a longer term strategic perspective but in terms of like kind of from a COVID um, you know side in terms of trying to release capacity and create flow there has been you know some benefit in some systems on that um, and then I suppose in terms of where we are now um, this current financial year they called H1 and H2 which is just you know first half second half um, you know we had to do uh, a myriad of returns kind of back in um, November for some of that but it did feel quite artificial Tom if I'm being quite honest because it still felt that we weren't really sure where we were with Covid and you know, this is where you get the politics in play in the NHS, which is always a biggie in terms of nationally what they expect and, um, you know, locally what they expect and actually what you can deliver and trying to align those. And I suppose it all sounds a little bit, you know, kind of, um, you know, cliche, 
but I do think teams are generally quite tired because really we have you know had nearly two years now of working in quite an odd environment and even though you know if you look at our hospitals now you can say well you know our Omicron surge hasn't been as big as we thought in Bristol in particular it's peaked earlier than we thought we haven't had quite the increase that London saw I think London was fourfold we were 3.5 but the problem is those patients don't just stay like in their blue beds as we call them um, for COVID they generally will have a step down um, period um, I suppose the influx then that we're seeing of demand and having to keep some of those um, IPC measures you know this week has been a disastrous week if you're just looking from a flow ambulance handover um, and then you know what I can't forget about and I know we'll come on to because I think it's just important that like COVID guidance is still there and it's still driving a lot of the agenda um, but I suppose picking up on the H1 and H2 and all the financial arrangements changed etc you know to a certain extent systems were quite protected um, in terms of you know almost nationally being you know topped up for expenditure as long as it was um, a COVID related cost um, especially in H1 they then set budgets for that in H2 um, but we then move on to the planning guidance for next year and that's a little bit of a kind of shit back to reality um, type of feeling because again there's 101 things to do um, within that again some of it feels you know complex because we have dropped and rightly so some of the contracting that we would have done especially as a CCG commissioner you know because we needed to go to light touch you know we need to be thinking you know the flow was the most important it wasn't about you know have you got value for money because you know the whole kind of system kind of got thrown up in the air a little bit um so it is about interpreting i suppose and then trying to plan um but doing that within the realization that yes we have got a recovery program but we're not that's not going to be for next year and that could be five years that could be 10 years but there's a lot of national push in terms of thinking differently one of those things could be things for example like for elective hot and cold sites and you know totally you know sign up to that but again you don't make those decisions or build something quickly i know they did in china for covid but the nhs isn't usually that responsive is it sometimes so uh, yeah. yeah that's kind of that, that that's the guidance and um minds are focused now i think it's the 28th of april is the big submission um for the planning guidance so yeah. and it was a present as always from the national team on christmas eve <laughs> absolutely yeah you unwrapped it which they promised they wouldn't do but they still did it <laughs> yeah. uh, Caroline, I'm just going to take a, a little sidestep for a second. You mentioned um, the vaccination targets at, at the 4th of February. Um, just because it's so topical, have you got an idea of what the impact is likely to be to your system? It's a really good question and it was something we were discussing this morning. So we have like a gold um, meeting as part of our metallic structure, as part of our escalated arrangements currently, which is you know mainly chief exec. Um, and I think if I was going to say, give you an honest answer, we do know, but I couldn't give you the detail. Do you know what I mean? Because some of yeah. that works in progress at the moment. So, you know, for some of our hospitals, we know that, you know, there are some nurses that, you know, don't wish to have that, um, you know, vaccine. You know, I think that the NHS, you know, wouldn't be forcing anybody. Everyone's allowed to have their own individual decision, but we would obviously, you know, give people opportunity that you know that we could you know support them in their role if they wish to then have the vaccine you know next month or something and we would be able to do that 
So it's interesting because we've obviously had some comparisons as well in terms of the targets around the care homes, which is obviously um, at the end of the last year. And that, you know, that was really concerning for the local authorities in relation to, you know, was it going to be 5%? Because in terms of sort of like our own system and flow, we can, you know, we haven't got enough now. So to lose any capacity would be a nightmare. It didn't materialise as big as we thought it could. And I think that from a hospital perspective, we'll be in a similar place. I think the worry I might have, because I don't think we can quantify it at the moment, and we know that the market still isn't where it needs to be as a domiciliary care market. And I think that is a real risk because, you know, we've now got permission that we are allowed to be able to recruit from abroad um, through the local authorities, which is a step forward. Um, But again, you know, I don't think you know, because it's almost such a depleted market, I think the vaccinations could hit that harder than other parts. Yeah, okay, brilliant, thank you. I'm going to bring us back on track now. So you, we were talking about the different the different guidance. Um, you talked about having kind of a tired system, as it were. So when you've got so many different competing priorities, different guidance around, how do you pick through that and prioritise what you should be doing? So I think in our audience, so everyone will know that there's all these different bits of guidance and 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 it's kind of are things given equal airtime if, if you're told that something is a priority is it really a priority or are, are you actually not really looking at that you're looking at something else how, do, how does that process work so I mean I think obviously like you know there's 10 priorities in that um in the planning guidance I think that they are all relevant um, you know, they've all got, you know, and the, the only reason they're put in is to try and I suppose, push our thinking and move us on, isn't it? So there is something about, you know, the health service not being reactive and being proactive. And how long have we been saying that? You know, probably as long as I've worked in the NHS, if not, um, you know, before longer than that. Um, you know, so I think that there's good aspirations in there. If I'm, you know, and this is a personal opinion, um, I think in terms of you know, from a planning guidance and working through um, the CCG, obviously there'll be some areas that are have more of a say over just because that's what my role covers. So, you know, anything around urgent um, or elective care um, to a certain extent, you know, perhaps like mental health and dis- learning disabilities. Um, and, you know, things might change, but my worry, I suppose, would be that we are so obsessed and some of this will be driven by the media as well and kind of what are the easier kind of like tangible things to be able to portray in the press. You always end up coming back to the acutes. And you know, if you think about the um, kind of press that we've had over the last couple of months around internal critical incident being called in the hospitals, that's what generates the headlines. And it's interesting, you know, that our NHSIE um, region, you know, kind of adapted processes to be able to capture that information because obviously there was a disconnect locally between the press and then kind of what the national team um, and, you know, Secretary of State in particular as well um, was then aware of. Um, So I suppose in terms of working it through, we're almost like in that kind of process now, you know, we will have, um, you know, a governance structure in terms of, you know, which groups are responsible who does, you know, we've got planning groups, you know, most of this will kind of get to kind of a director of finance level in terms of sign off. I think the more tricky part is actually trying to understand what some of the guidance means, which might sound silly, but it's not. So if I gave you an example for that, um, you know, there's areas within elective care where we've received more guidance, you know, which is good. Um, You know, you start to kind of get more 
um, you know, thrashing out really kind of the expectations. But, you know, when you've potentially created more backlogs, you know, and we were trying to do innovative work through COVID because we've had to do a lot more non-face-to-face -face and things like that and really push it. But, you know, there's an expectation in there that, you know, we almost need to get through our follow-up backlogs, but also reduce our activity by 25%. And you kind of think, well, are those two, you know, do they really go hand in hand, um, especially within one financial year? I mean, I think there are some small changes which are positive in the sense of um, actually looking, you know, kind of at a three-year, um, you know, kind of financial, um, you know, kind of... Um, kind of release in terms of what they're trying to do but again the actual planning guidance and the targets themselves are only a year i think it demonstrates as well in that planning guidance for example like from an urgent care perspective that i probably have never seen quite as many um, really prescriptive targets and that's probably because of you know where our performance is you know which is nothing to be proud of um, you know, so there's a lot of focus, for example, on our decisions to admit, you know, they've got to be less than 12 hours um, and everything, which we know. Um, but some of those things and not just in my system, but across the country, I know kind of have crept up. Um, and again, there's a massive focus on, you know, ambulances and all of this is right um, because it's actually about trying to keep our whole community safe. Um, but it is you know, particularly prescriptive and I don't think there's easy answers either. Yeah. Um, so, I think. so, so who ultimately sort of makes the call on should we focus on urgent or elective or ambulance or mental health? You don't have that choice, Tom. You've got to do it all. If you said that back to NHSIE, it would just be no. Well, that's not good enough. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I know every you know system, you know, and it does have some autonomy. But a really good example this week is you know, everybody was asked to revise the 104 week wait um, targets. We have um, um, expanded, unfortunately, in terms of the numbers on our waiting list compared to what we put in for our um, H2 plan. But, you know, if region don't like it, they will, you know, push it back. But you're in that kind of quandary then, don't you, of you need to aspire, you need to be ambitious because we need to do the right things for our patients. But you also have to have some reality um, in terms of what you're doing. And I think the interesting bits will be around things like the population, um, you know, health management, the core plus, you know, 20, et cetera, um, which, you know, some places are quite far ahead on. Um, I think we've got, you know, lots of work, but it's about, I suppose, once you focus on all the things that sometimes make the headlines, are you doing that other work in the background, really? Because otherwise you're never going to change how you, you know, look at things. And I think that's really important kind of going into an integrated care board, which is what the CCGs will turn into, because obviously our focus really should be about, you know, integration, joining things up, but in particular, trying to look at the prevention side rather than just being the reactive health service. And I'm talking to you now about backlogs and, you know, kind of ambulance responses and the number of DTAs and ED departments. Yeah, so, so that's a really interesting point you raised there about kind of the, the tension between the guidance, which is kind of perceived a little bit as a, a return to sort of centralised performance management. And then the integration agenda is all about devolution of responsibility and local decision making and prioritisation. How has that been received locally? Does it feel like there's a tension there? Is it a bit of, well, what do they actually want us to do? Or is it a case of, we'll just do what we're told and the integration bit waits? How, how is that whole piece being managed? Um, so I so I think again personal view um, and being honest I do think that there is um, 
tension. And I think if you look at when um, the concept and some of the guidance came out, I want to say middle of last year in terms of sort of like the integration, um, with that came out um, almost a segmentation of systems, didn't it, in terms of your performance levels? So you can say you're working towards being a system with much more autonomy, and yet at the same time you've been segmented. And I suppose if you're in the bad segment, basically you were really back into, you know, people working with you, you know, and you have to question, well, how does that then build autonomy or your own capability within the system? Um, you know, to be able to, you know, do what you need to do. Um, so, so that was an interesting start. Um, and I think it will, you know, at the end of the day, we will still be performance managed, won't we? And I think the most interesting bit in all of this, and again, some systems might have cracked it and then they, you know, they could be further ahead than um, where we are, but it's how you create that collective accountability, isn't it? Which is what you're supposed to be doing um, from an integrated care. Um, perspective and you know that this is no disrespect to anyone but you know it, it does feel new you know because at the end of the day you know from a CCG perspective some of our role has been and obviously COVID's changed it a bit but it has been about holding people to account and trying to get the system you know to work together and perform in the best way it can but in the new world technically you know providers are as collectively responsible and accountable within that system working as the CCG is, um, you know, so, you know, like other places, you know, there's lots of, um, you know, different chief execs, it might be local authorities, it could be, um, you know, acute providers or, you know, community will be chairing different steering groups to try and, and I suppose, you know, kind of like think about the cross-fertilisation, but also again, how you work as a system, but we haven't cracked that, you know, we're working through what we think our ICB governance could be now, um, you know, and it will be a change and we won't get it right. And then I think a lot of systems and mine in particular, we're losing our current chief exec. We have someone new starting in the middle of February, which isn't long now. And that's great. Um, he will bring with him a wealth of experience, as I'm sure we're welcome. And in particular from Northern Ireland. So obviously they've been integrated for a lot longer, um, you know, than what the English system is trying to do now so it'll be interesting to see kind of what that brings with it and you know for all we know we might go off on a slightly different track because that's invariably sometimes what happens isn't it yeah um, yeah so so do you think for this year then as you're trying to get your heads around the integration piece actually it's, it's helpful in some respects to have a bit of central guidance on on some things to focus on so at least you're going to be achieving in those things then you can figure out everything out rather than having to figure out all that yourselves sort of from from scratch i think so because i suppose from a national perspective you've got to try and keep some consistency in the nhs as well and i think that some of the problems that we have stored up you know and we blame covid don't we but you know we have been through you know we're not in the blair years anymore are we in the health service that's all i'm going to say you know so we've probably had 10 years of you know, perhaps not as much investment. We've then had COVID on top. And, you know, whilst we have been given lots of non-recurrent money pots, it's the worst thing I think you can give systems. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, rightly or wrongly, this is probably the first time in my career working in the last quarter um, of this financial year where I can honestly say money isn't a problem. And I would never say things like that because as a commissioner, my role is about value for money. 
um, but it's not because of the amount of non-recurrent. But from a strategic and change perspective and trying to get to grips with all those issues, it doesn't help and it doesn't solve things. Um, but yeah, to a certain extent, we'll all moan about the targets, but to a certain extent, it does kind of keep you fixed in terms of what you need to do. And also, I suppose at the end of the day, you know, the ends in the NHS, it's national, you know, and, that, you know, we ought to be providing similar offers, didn't we, really, regardless of where you're living in the country. And we know that we don't always do that. Um, but, you know, again, with the backlogs and stuff, I think people, as in the population, have a right you know, to know that they're not going to be waiting two years for an operation, you know, and that we're on our way in terms of delivering, you know, getting trying to get back to play that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Could you just briefly expand? You talked about non-recurrent funding there. Could you just I'm just thinking in our audience, people might see sort of transformation funds and the various pots that come along as kind of catalysts for really driving innovation, doing things differently. Can you just explain briefly why the difference between recurrent and non-recurrent and why non-recurrent maybe isn't as appealing as it as it may seem? Yeah, so um, I mean, quite often every year, especially for winter pressures, um, not so much over the, the last couple of years because it's been wrapped up with COVID, we've always been given non-recurrent pots for winter. Now, you can say, well, that's a good thing, and I can think about, you know, okay, so what transformation can I do? The problem with the NHS is you always boil back down to, you know, kind of 80% of your costs are going to be staffing. Um, and I suppose the issue we've had with COVID, and we hear this on the news all the time, is that we are faced with the, you know, sickness, the age of some of our working population as well. If you want to recruit people, if you've got like a six month non-recurrent pot, you're generally not necessarily going to be able to attract or recruit the right people. So that's a problem. Um, yes, you might be able to buy, you know, some capital. You know, generally, if it's a six months, you can't do anything major, perhaps from a capital perspective. So, you know, I'm making this up now, but say like I wanted to extend, you know, like a planned investigation unit, add another room or perhaps to do some infusions. You probably have, don't probably have quite enough to be able to do that. Plus, you need more nurses and you haven't got the recurrent funding source for the nurses to be able to do the infusions or whatever else they might want to do. Um, you know, so and I, think, I suppose that's why there are initiatives. So, for example, you know, what we've been doing with ours, which, again, they're all short fixes is it's not sorting out the strategic issues. Um, and in some respects, you can say it's just going to build up problems going into the next financial year. But we have opened a care hotel. You know, it's an expensive model, um, but it was a model that's really quick to deliver because of the type of service provider, um, you know, that we've contracted with. Um, you know, we've commissioned um, additional um, beds where we can find them. Um, and that's been important, especially for covering, for example, like homes when they've closed with COVID and things like that. So, yes, it's been useful. And yes, we've always had sort of, you know, pots of money. So like in previous years, you know, for example, like with winter pressures, we might, you know, you can put out a load of extra shifts, can't you, which is great. You know, so if we know, and we always know this, and the ambulance um, providers are generally like almost the best at predicting it, but, you know, you'll know that it might be the 26th or the 27th that you'll get an influx of people, for example, into the hospital. And even as a commissioner, you know, you need to know some of those things. You'd work with your provider you know, to think about, you know, can we put some extra shifts or what can we do differently on that? But it's a short term fix. You need people, you need extra, but it doesn't give you a sustained level of funding necessarily going forward. Yes, I know it's about productivity 
efficiency and that is there um, in the NHS and I, I think in particular um, for elective um, I do think there's more we can do but I think that you know it's been really difficult from an urgent care perspective. Yeah okay thank you and one of the, the priority areas in the guidance is make the most effective use of resources so when that's stated as a priority I think probably for you in your role that's you know well kind of a bit of a no-brainer anyway but how do you see that as a stated priority what does that mean to you and, and your colleagues? Um, so I mean I suppose working you know kind of within the public sector you expect to you know you expect to have that don't you within your role it's something that you know you almost you know you need to do um and I suppose as a you know as a commissioner now in particular not so didn't feel quite so much in, in in a provider although again you'll be limited in terms of um the budget you've got you know you need to look at all options don't you so you need to be aware of you know where your productivity is you need to think about you know efficiency in the system you know and I suppose you know we can all get a bit frustrated about things for example like elective and I was saying to you about you know follow-ups but you know there's different ways we can provide some of this and actually sometimes are we a little bit too risk averse or are we just reliant in terms of providing the same old and we could do it in a different way and make more use of our technology you know I think there's a whole load of work that again um, you know we're starting to explore especially around like our social care social care um, sector where you know technology could really change I think in terms of how some care homes or even residential homes run which would actually really would release costs um, you know to be able to um, demonstrate that um, so to me it's something that's in the back of your mind and I suppose when I'm talking to my chief executives or having a performance review it would be something that you would expect to be able to demonstrate and I suppose in some respects it's almost um, you know kind of ingrained in terms of how the NHS works it doesn't really matter where you work you'll always have a financial saving that you need to do and I suppose if you do that properly you'll make that recurrent which kind of falls into making the best use of your resources so um, that's tricky to do it's very easy to make the non-recurrent savings because you know you might have a post that you don't fill there'll be something along those lines but in terms of actually making you know that recurrent um you know change it's harder it's doable you know and i've done it in roles but i've, I've never done 100 percent of my savings on a recurrent basis yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> <laughs> so just thinking about that idea of <clears throat> when you're commissioned or, or starting a piece of work looking at an initiative a program whatever it might be and trying to make it the most or add the most value it can be made be most cost effective is your starting point this is a piece of work that we need to do let's do it in the best way we can or is it we need to deliver care in the most effective cost effective way how can we achieve that in this particular clinical area so i think it will depend what you're trying to do and the context around it and by that I mean is it a national diktat that you literally need to do within the next two weeks and a good example of that was some of the infusion um, drugs that we needed to be able to provide for um, people with COVID um, which everyone's had to do because um, at the end of the day it was just about how do we do it rather than how are we going to do it in two weeks um, or whether it's a longer term initiative so and 
I think the disappointing thing sometimes with the NHS, but at the end of the day, you know, it's a it's a public organisation. You know, there isn't a, a money tree um, for it. You know, and healthcare is expensive. Um, you know, but quite often, if you get like good initiatives, except you go over budget, you end up having to slash your project to meet your budget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's so much capital that will go on in terms of, well, actually, we're going to have to lose a bit of space or we'll have to take this out. You know, you don't get perhaps all the equipment that you need, you know. And the problem is that you, you're not that you're setting yourself up to fail, but you've then got to think about how do you overcome some of those issues. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, a good another example at the moment, which people will be battling with, is some of the community diagnostic centres. So they were, you know, big announcements. They're national pots of money. They haven't come out through local systems. Um, you know, ideally in our area, you know, it's quite spread out, you know, we've got a real urban um, kind of conurbation, but then we're almost quite rural, which almost feels weird because you think Bristol and you just think city. Um, you think about North Somerset, you know, that proves the point it is rural. Um, but really, you know, you wouldn't just have one, you want three. But it's, you know, t- realistically, you're not going to get through within the kind of the quantum of the funding that we've got. Um, and then you need to think about the type of diagnostic, but obviously you need to then relate that back into kind of what you know you've got your demand or what your existing provision is already. Um, yeah. So yeah, so tr- tricky one. Um, but and I'm probably not giving the right answers, but you know, nine times out of ten, you end up having to adjust kind of what you think is you know perhaps you started with the gold standard, it goes down to the bronze. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, that's a really, really useful. I, I, I think it's a, a very, very helpful answer indeed, actually. Um, you mentioned there the community diagnostics hubs. It, within the guidance, there's several elements that focus on kind of out-of-hospital care. So it's virtual wards, community care, digital, uh, digital care models, those sorts of things. You've touched on community diagnostics, but overall, I think we all know there's kind of this direction of travel to get things out of hospital and closer to the patient. What are the biggest challenges for you and your colleagues in achieving that shift? So I'm going to sound a bit like a stuck record. I think COVID was excellent for this. And I think it actually energised and I think it energised some of the clinicians. So I think that, um, you know, you know, we were, um, you know, through guidance, we needed to prevail, be able to provide like a virtual ward in relation to sort of like some of our COVID patients. You know, we did things like oximetry at home. Some of it might sound quite basic, but it really pushed it. And I suppose that was where some of the non-recurrent pots that we did have really helped because you could buy a whole load of oximeters and do you know what? And you've got them and you've got them in your system then and then you can um, kind of work with it. Um, I think I think people generally have signed up to it because also you know, where are we going to get the beds from? Do you know what I mean? So if we don't, again, think about doing some of this differently, but I think that I suppose the two almost like main barriers you feel you get into is one, I suppose, risk thresholds in terms of like working with clinicians. Some of it is even though you're saying, well, you you know, technically you don't need all the resources that you would need if they were, you know, our patients were in, I don't know, community hospital or even acute hospital, um, you still need resource, don't you, to be able to run that system? And that was one of the problems we did have with some of the COVID things. Because while we had, and you know, over the last um, you know couple of years, we've always had a COVID war. But there was one point, and I'll forget when it is because all the words kind of blurred together for me. But there was one point we didn't have the ward, and without the ward, how did I provide 
kind of this 12 hour response line because I put it through the ward but how did I do that for the kind of virtual COVID ward when I didn't have it in place so there's little things like that and I couldn't put it through for example like my same day emergency care unit because they weren't seven days a week it doesn't have enough clinicians to run it seven days a week so I was on six so it's all those all those kind of little things you don't think about and I suppose the other obstacle is actually understanding the impact of it and some of it reminds me a little bit and this is going back a few years now but it was when kind of we, we called it kind of all the long-term conditions and we had sort of like some of the predictive um, modeling of need and trying to you know kind of work on your primary care data set to predict you know kind of your secondary care admission your community matrons and trying to join all of that together and it reminds me of that because how do you predict what you've prevented you see what I mean? So how do you predict that non-admission? And I think some of the virtual ward, because we're struggling with it now, because we were trying to do something locally um, and trying to push that back up into our goal, who do take a real detailed, um, you know, kind of um, understanding in terms of kind of where we are with our urgent care agenda, just because we are so um, pressurised. But it's really hard to demonstrate it. But it is such the right thing to do. Um, you know, and I suppose we're back to... You know, at times, you know, if you compare us to kind of Europe, I don't think that, you know, from a bedded population perspective, you know, have we got enough? I don't know. But then we've gone through transforming community services, haven't we, in a really big push in terms of if you don't need the beds, you know, don't, you know, potentially take them out of the system. Don't mean you're taking facilities away from the population, but you're just thinking about, um, you know, perhaps more community teams providing you've got the workforce. But then it's the infrastructure and the estate of the NHS, isn't it? Because some of it just isn't fit for purpose and that creates its own inefficiencies, you know, from a care perspective, but also from a staffing perspective. Yeah. So you, you mentioned there kind of the virtual ward is kind of mm -hmm. stuff that you've done before in, in different guises. What makes it different or more achievable? Does anything make it different or more achievable now? Is it that you've got better kind of technology is that you've got more mobile workforce is it just that you've kind of been given that stated aim if you have to do this so there's more of an incentive or more of a drive to do it or is it just we've been trying to do this it's basically just an evolution of what's gone before but someone's just called out I, th I think genuinely I think that the technology is better and I think is an enabler to letting this, you know, letting some of this happen. And I suppose it almost relates a little bit in terms of like what I was saying around some of the social care, um, you know, kind of projects in terms of, you know, remote monitoring and everything else. And I suppose if you just think about, you know, it might be a bit of a cliche um, example, but, you know, you think about all the technology on your phone and we think of all the stuff you see, you know, sometimes you always think you're always coming from America. Not always, but you know, and what your phone can do for you, then why on earth aren't we doing that um, in the NHS? But some of it's about, I suppose, validation of results, isn't it? And getting that clinical trust into that system. And that sometimes can be a headache. But if you, you know, kind of work through some of that, I mean, even just doing some of the, um, you know, kind of like testing, um, you know, kind of your bog standard, you know, like blood testing and uh, everything else outside of the acute sometimes would still be a headache. But once you'd got the system established, it was good. So I think that I do think technology has moved us on. I do actually think COVID has moved it on in from a people's mindsets. But I do think people cling on to sometimes reverting back quickly. 
Um, you know, so, you know, a good example on that one are things like, you know, your remote outpatients, etc. So, you know, once people, you know, if you know that you're back in plan A and you're not in plan B anymore as a country, clinicians will, so you've got to have a bit of a strong will, I yeah. think, in terms of, you know, trying to think about, again, how do you get the best out of your um, resources? So, um, and also, you know, rightly or wrongly, we are being told this is what we need to do, but you can yeah. see why we need to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think probably we're all, everyone in the audience as well is kind of thinking, well, yeah, it all makes sense. It seems like the right thing to do, but it still takes time and energy and, and resource to get there. In I think the frightening thing is, though, is that when you look at, um, you know, like there's so much guidance, isn't there, out there. But if you just, you know, and I am going to go back into secondary care just because that was sort of like, I suppose, where my expertise lies a little bit. But, you know, to be efficient as a hospital, you need to be 85% occupancy. Um, there will be someone, I'm sure, but show me a hospital in this country that's at 85% or less. And that's the problem. And if we don't, I suppose, keep trying to chip away, you know, and some of it is at the margins. But if we don't collectively do that on all these different initiatives, we're in trouble, you know, because I know Boris has pledged, you know, you know, more hospitals and everything else. And I was fortunate that I've just left a hospital where we were getting a whole new kind of brand, you know, brand new ED. And yes, that will help, and it will help from a logistics perspective, it will help efficiency. But actually, in terms of future-proofing and just thinking where we are with demographics and everything else, ED might be bigger. I'm not sure if we're gaining much from a FDEC, like same-day emergency care um, perspective, which, again, you know, we need to pursue because we've got to stop admitting people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and in terms of making those shifts to doing things differently, how prevalent among your peers and, and generally within the system is kind of the, the systems thinking approach, kind of that recognition that we're all joined up, we're all in this together. So the way that we're going to improve things in ED is actually to work closer with mental the mental health teams or with community teams or other other partners within the system. So I think the will is there. I think that there, I think part of the problem is that there are different appetites from different organisations. Um, and I think some of that, again, you can't generalise because every provider will be slightly different. I can honestly say going into this system that I find parts of it more risk averse than where I've worked before and also a reluctance for change. Um, but then I think in terms of perseverance for the project, people do come round and actually then can be quite helpful. Um, and I think it was music to my ears, literally just before I came on this call, that one of the projects that I've been um, struggling with, I suppose, in terms of kind of like system sign up, somebody actually said, well, we all need this to succeed for the system. Do you know what I mean? And I think people just having that attitude and supporting in that way will make such a big difference um, in terms of um, what we can do. Um, so, so I mean, you know, we still get some of the cliches, don't we? So we know that our mental health providers, you know, are working really hard with our acute providers in terms of, you know, trying to get people to the right place. You know, some of it is capacity. You know, there are some real national um, issues in some of our pathways in terms of what is commissioned um, and what isn't um, but 
I think the other problem that we've potentially got with our system, um, and this is just the way we've designed the system, is that most of the pressure, and I'm probably going to annoy some people by saying this, but the pressure ends up, doesn't it, in secondary care. So GPs are, you know, too pressurised and they've had the whole vaccination programme almost like, you know, dumped on them in letters, for example, in December, which, you know, the worst time of year and they have all of that to do. Um, you know, so there's no, you know, criticism to them. But then in terms of sometimes how the messages go out and patients, you know, we've never won on the patient behaviour aspect, I don't think, in the NHS. But where are you going to go if you need something and you know it's always open? It's ED, isn't it? Yeah, and that's absolutely. you know, and that and that's part of the um the problem, and I suppose the risks sometimes that the acutes are taking, and again, this will sound inflammatory. I'm not trying to be disrespectful to anybody, um, you know, and kind of like where they're working, you know, but you don't always feel that pressure perhaps in another part of the system. Mm. So, and I suppose at least I can say with first-hand experience and not nice experience, but. You know, you've literally got ambulances queuing outside, patients down corridors, etc. You know, where else do you see that in kind of different parts of the, um, you know, health service? So I probably yeah, shouldn't say I'm going to insult somebody in a minute, but all I'm just trying to say is I do think sometimes there are different levels of pressure. And I suppose it's just trying to adjust those so that everybody is perhaps feeling the same pain mm. or at yeah, least yeah. we need to have a better understanding in terms of what that pain is for each of the organizations yeah and i suppose pressure looks and feels different depending on where you are in the system it will it? it will and i think it's understanding that um, yeah. and we've, we've had various attempts at that kind of where i am now so we've got like a clinical cabinet you know which is great as you've got all your medical directors there you know you've got your datas from your local um authorities you know, it's a great kind of like, you know, clinical forum. Um, but it's interesting, like trying to do like a business impact assessment in terms of, you know, what services are absolutely essential and you need to provide, you know, whatever. So I'm making out the critical care. You know, what are the other services where actually could you redeploy or do something different? And I think we were trying to do something as a system. And some of it will be about understanding the process of what we're trying to do. But I think we have six green services, which essentially were six services. We actually came from our community provider. So, you know, they were great, understood and were trying to help. But there were six things there that we could do differently to try and support, you know, another potential surge through Omicron. Yeah. But that, at least it's tested that thinking and we're going to build on that now. Yeah. So now that we've committed yeah. our kept that and I'm keeping it on the shelf because my team's now going to relook at that. And then yeah. we'll add to it, and then that will become part of our escalation framework. So, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, um, you mentioned the the call that you had just before this session, and that something had just unlocked. Without needing to get into the detail of what the program of work was or anything, what was it that suddenly unlocked that to allow the change to occur? Because I think that's 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 often a problem, isn't it? There's a bottleneck or there's a, a blocker in the system, whatever that might be or look like. How do you overcome mm. that? Um, so, so in this particular project, it was a project that was signed off by the chief executive. So it gone through um, our gold um, structure. Everyone has signed up to it, but everyone had begrudgingly signed up to it. And I suppose the reason they begrudgingly signed up to this was because they didn't have a better project. Okay. So it's a bit like when, you know, and do you just sit there and do nothing or do you actually try something? So there's something about appetite for change as well, um, you know, 
And as I've said before, are people tired? I don't know, but I do think every system is different in terms of what they want to do. Um, this project, I think, has gone from, and it was interesting actually in um, Gold this morning, because one of the chief executives did say, actually, sometimes when we're talking about this project, are we doing, are we almost adding um, to, you know, kind of like it's being dysfunctional or not achieving what we want to do, or we're almost, you know, kind of creating quality issues because we don't want it to work. And actually, as a system, we all need it to work. So that was just something that happened today. And I think some of that is people's mind adjustments to we've got this now. It's only here to the end of March, but it's a bit like, you know, you use it to your best advantage because it's part of the system and it is there to give us some extra capacity. You know, so there is a benefit in terms of our patients and there's a benefit there you know, for everyone in the system, really. Um, that was music to my ears. And then I think that I think sometimes I think people have sat on the sidelines a little bit and thrown a lot of things um, around. And it was actually coming from the clinical arm. So this isn't necessarily a clinical model, but it's a way of being able to um, look after patients in a in a way when they're medically fit, don't necessarily need to be having, um, you know, like medical care. Um, and, uh, you know, I think somebody had actually got, you know, the quite senior um, nurses from the system to say, actually, you know what, we've actually got responsibility here. So, you know, when patients are being discharged and they haven't got their dressings and, and I think some of it, you know, you'd like to think that, you know, our nursing colleagues, you know, as we all do, you know, but they are our patient advocates as well, aren't they? And I think perhaps some of that had started to, um, you know, come through and actually we all have a responsibility. So for me, it was music to my ears and I think it was just, um, you know, these things happen, but I do think it's a pe that period of adjustment. And I think the trouble with the NHS is that sometimes we can have three months of planning something. We planned this in three weeks. So yeah. it's a good thing that we actually did something quickly. But the problem is it's trying to take, it's like whenever you do something quickly, it's trying to take people with you, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's a challenge we've all encountered. I think it, it, just in terms of that piece around doing things differently, how do you, obviously with all the restrictions that still exist and the multiple layers of guidance that we've talked about, how do you expect to innovate at the moment? Um, so I think some of it will be will and need. Yeah, and I suppose it depends how you class innovation. Um, so I think that, you know, there are some projects that are running with non-recurrent pots, but I think will lead us down perhaps a more technology enabled route. So I think that, you know, kind of that's a really good thing. Um, I think sometimes we make things too complex and sometimes actually we just need to go back to basics. So and I think, you know, yes, we do need to look at value for money, but sometimes what's more important having, you know, perhaps the most perfect financial model or actually moving the system on and getting more patients treated. There is a balance there. Um, so I think some of that's come to light and we are having to work differently, I think, in the NHS around some of our workforce and how we get our workforce. You know, so, you know, we are embracing probably, you know, more agencies or brokers might be a better word in terms of almost using a brokerage, you know, type of um, organisation to be able to help us think about our staffing. 
um, especially kind of sometimes in areas which perhaps might not be as attractive for people to want to work. And that's part of the problems when you've got small hospitals, as I mentioned um, earlier, you know, it's not just the sustainability from a financial perspective, but how do you get people in their careers to want to work there if they don't think they're going to go anywhere after all, they're not getting the exposure um, to things that you would do in another environment. So I think innovation can happen in a number of ways. Do you know what I mean? And I think that it all comes down to people as well. And I think that, um, you know, a really good example today, um, you know, was that we've done some of the roving backpack vaccination clinics, which sounds a bit weird. And somebody said to me, oh, that reminds me of Ghostbusters. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, all credit to them. Yes, it probably, you know, you saw a smaller number of patients than if you'd done something in one of our max, mass vaccination centres. But it hit the really, you know, kind of the vulnerable communities because we went out into the communities, you know, went to cafes, didn't do too much kind of almost like the cold calling on the doors. I think some people found that a little bit too intrusive because, you know, we'd looked at it, we'd surveyed some of it. Um, but, you know, that was innovative, really, because that was the NHS actually trying to come out and do more of a Tesco's type of you know, initiative of actually, you know, getting to your customer and understanding what your customer wants. Yeah. you know and has a bigger system and community impact as well you know because yeah. once you've got people generally you know, perhaps even on their first vaccine now it'll probably sign them up or you can agree with them or we'll come out and do this again for you in you know three months time so and do you, do you think you're like to see sort of more of those targeted programs of work as, as it were as you're getting a better understanding of your population I think we need to because I think that's why you know we're being driven in the right way in terms of actually understanding our population health needs more and I suppose that's going to be the biggest challenge to some extent in terms of ICBs because yes well and I suppose this is the scary thing isn't it you don't lose the performance management infrastructure in the NHS and so in some respect you can't because we are you know a public sector and you know we're accountable aren't we back to you know to, to everybody but also um the government um kind of sometimes like intrusion that we get um but within that you know the icb's role isn't it is to identify its own priorities as well so yes of course we've got to deliver everything to keep things perhaps national and consistent but actually what really matters or where have we really got the problems in bnssg what are those priorities and i suppose really that's what the icb in terms of you know the partnership and you know there'll be a partnership forum you know how is it going to tackle those and that's really where you want to see you know kind of like um i suppose all the merits of what an icb is achieving so yeah, yeah brilliant thank you um we've just got a, a few minutes left so i just wanted to to ask you now about that that bit around looking for innovations and, and doing things differently would you look to industry partners so pharmaceutical companies med tech companies digital companies to bring solutions to you to help you deliver against your plans definitely so i know that the nhs sometimes we've had a bit of a um chinese well we need a chinese wall don't we and people i'll be honest people still are a little bit skeptical sometimes of working with people outside the nhs you know I, it's not something that i necessarily have you know signed up to because i think that you know there's innovation in many other sectors and sometimes the NHS is a little bit slow adopting those. Um, but, you know, when you look at some of the technology, most of it isn't coming through kind of like NHS organisations. So I think we should be kind of, you know, working partnership a lot more. Um, 
you know, and, you know, obviously, you know, people need to think about their own, you know, profitability and everything else. But, you know, if we go for a pilot, everyone's kind of, you know, got a way out and it doesn't work if you agree the parameters of what you're trying to achieve. So I think, you know, I think that's great. And I think that's something that we, you know, should be doing more of. Yeah. Um, and what, what are the kinds of things that you'd be thinking about? Is it, have you got a technology? Is it, can you help me with workforce? Is it, can you help me with data and understanding the population? Are there specific areas or is it just kind of? Um, so, I mean, the data, think from a data perspective, the NHS has got so much data, it's untrue. Whether we use it well is another question. I think, I mean, there, there is work, isn't there, across the country with different systems in relation to um, understanding their population better, stratifying that population. And I don't think sometimes we've got a good history in that. So I think that's a, that's, there's an open door there. Um, and I think, you know, some people have had some success in that. Um, I think there's, you know, things around um, understanding, you know, like our lifestyle choices and really getting to know our consumers. I've mentioned Tesco's before, I'll mention Tesco's again, but obviously there are other supermarkets. Um, and I suppose, you know, on a sensible note, in terms of, I mentioned the ICS priorities before, um, but, you know, we've got to get, you know, better. We, we've just got so much information. You know, you look about, you know, we've got COP. We don't talk about COP as much as we used to, but it is still there and it will give us, you know, an understanding of perhaps, you know, where we've been, you know, what our current sort of like baseline is. And we've got that much kind of coming out of secondary care. It's ridiculous because we count every widget that kind of, um, you know, goes through. Um, but to me, I think the population health management, um, things around that, um, being able to stratify understanding our populations. We've never really taken that. We're a reactive health service, aren't we? So how do we make us more preventative to aim at the services that we need to target? So I think that's where there's an open door. And I still think there's an open door on the technology side of things. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much, Caroline. Um, we're going to have to close there now, but really appreciate your time this afternoon. I'm sure everyone who's been listening as well would have been scribbling furiously to make notes on, on the fantastic things you shared with us. Um, so for everyone on our audience, um, hopefully you've seen today's conversation has been sort of a further illustration that the gaps between the stated policy and, and what really happens on the ground are not getting any closer and, and in some respects possibly widening. Um, and for you as our audience, it's, it's really important to understand that nuance around some of the things Caroline's been talking about uh, in order to achieve your own success. Um, if there's anything that we at MTEC Access can support you with to, to achieve success this year, be that uh, pricing and strategy all the way through to communication tools and sales aids, please do drop us an email at info at mtechaccess.co.uk. I'm going to be back on March the 4th, uh, where we're going to be looking at specific ways in which the NHS is transforming. Um, calling back to virtual wards and community diagnostics and looking at those in a bit more detail amongst other things. We're also on March the 22nd holding a virtual symposium where we'll have senior leaders from across the NHS, uh, including an interview and question and answer session with Sir Jim Mackey, um, looking at how the industry can achieve successful, successful partnerships with the NHS. Uh, so please keep an, invite, uh, an eye out for an invite to that paid event. And for now, thank you again for coming along and see you next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. 
If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.